If you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. Our focus over these next few weeks will be verses 29 through 34. Over the last few weeks prior, we were looking at a section that I called the resurrection plan. Now we're going to look at something called resurrection motivation. Those of you who have been with us for a while, you know that once I start into another context, I try to draw a bigger picture so that we can kind of see where we're at, why we're where we're at, and what lays before us. And it's, it's almost like it's an overview. Uh, this is a funny text. Uh, some of you have known that I have... The statement has been made that he is going slow through 1 Corinthians because of verse 29. And uh, if you're expecting me to expound 29 today, you will be sadly disappointed. (laughs) Because I will set the stage for what will be taught in verses 29 to 34. And I think after I get done, you'll see what I am speaking of let's have a word of prayer and then we'll read the word of the lord father thank you for your scriptures father uh, and the firm foundation that is given to us for you hold us father give us ears to hear and eyes to see give us hearts that burn and long overwhelmed to be with you to be a part of you to be longing for you, to be about your work. Help us, Lord. And in, 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 in an era of, of confusion, in an era of clutter, in, a, in an era that wants so badly to drag us to and fro, Father, let us hear your words. Let us be workers approved, rightly dividing truth to your glory and praise. Amen. Beginning of verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, that by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. This is a fascinating text because I've heard a lot of, uh, shall I call it, misinterpretations of this text. And the reason I say that it's a misinterpretation is, what is its context? The resurrection. Okay, and I want to take you back for just a second because do you remember verse 12? Verse 12 is the issue for the 15th chapter. Verse 12 says, now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection from the dead? 
There were some literally in the church who were saying that the resurrection is fictitious or they may have bought a philosophy or an understanding that they carried out of their pagan lifestyle and they just carried it into their Christianity. I see this in the church today. You know, I I shared with you a survey that I had read that was done in our denomination and it said that 100% of the pastors believe that the Bible is the authoritative, inerrant, authoritative word of God that were done in this survey. And I thought, well, that's fascinating. Then why don't they... Yeah, never mind, that's another issue. <laughs> um, but they said that 60% of their congregations believe that. That don't make sense to me. But then, Jesus had 12. One betrayed him. One forsook him, and the other ten just vanished. Right? So it's not really that new. We have seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor in the book of Revelations, and of the seven, two are staying the faith, and yet all seven are non-existent entities today. All right? So how does this work? How does this work? And, of course, we have the, the text there in verse 29. On the baptism of the dead. What the heck is that? I can tell you what the Mormons believe. The Mormons are in the process of getting every name of the Jews who died in the Holocaust so that they may be baptized for those dead Jews. Uh, When Israel found out what they were doing, they got a little bit on the persnickety side and refused to give the names. Um, So I just think you ought to be baptized six million times and you'll cover them all. What a deal. Okay? I will deal with this in the next few weeks, but I need you to understand something in the context of Scripture when you deal with the text. There are texts of the Scriptures that become difficult at times. This text, uh, I will be honest with you, is a little bit intimidating, but after reading the book of Corinthians now for almost nine years every day, um, it's really not that complicated because of its... Context. Context is dealing with resurrection. All right? I want you to think about something. Those of you who've known me for a number of years uh, will understand this in me. Those of you who do not know me that well, uh, I will try to help you on my motivation that exists uh, in, in. the very fiber of my being. When I look at a text like this, I think about doctrine. Okay? Doctrine, that dreaded term. Theology. I mean, I can watch Christians when you mention the term doctrine or theology, they just glaze out. And say, well, I don't never went to Christian college and I don't got none of them there degrees. And yet, when I think about doctrine or I think about theology, you do not separate them. And I also look at it from my viewpoint, whether it's doctrine or theology, all truth of Scripture is given that it brings about a practical response. You've heard the altar call. 
right? Okay, and, and I've had people who've walked out of here saying, well, I can't believe you're a preacher. You didn't give an altar call. All right? I have before. You probably can count them on one hand out of 16, 17 years, but hey, I just haven't perfected it yet. And, and the reason I share that is, is because I believe that every Bible study that I have, every sermon that I preach, every interaction I have across my desk is calling for a response. And if I've got to badger you into a response, then it's useless. It's useless. All doctrine, all theology is given to bring about a practical response. Scripture, listen, here's one of the things that I am struggling with today as I deal with the church. And when I mean the church, I'm talking the bigger, not necessarily. And, and yet it happens in this congregation. But I'm talking about dealing with other pastors or other elders or other church leaders uh, or quote unquote ministry leaders or whatever. I struggle with this on a regular basis. And here is what I struggle with. Scripture is never intended to be a theory. Okay, scripture is not here. If you don't get anything out of today's message, one, it is not a theory and it is not a philosophy. And I see the body of Christ today has embraced the word of God as a theory and a philosophy. Okay, scripture has practical incentives has practical motivation in it. Now, I I need to make sure that you understand because when I teach doctrine or I teach theology, that is only the time that I'm teaching the Bible. And inherent in theology and or doctrine or the truths of the book, there are built-in incentives. Okay? Listen, right doctrine leads to right behavior, okay? Right principles lead to right conduct, all right? It's not a theory. It's not a philosophy. See, God lays out certain truths, and in giving us these truths, he expects certain kinds of behavior in response to that truth, The theology of Scripture is not something to just discuss or debate. Just talk about among theologians. You know, I I hear this term that is coming out that says, we preaching offends people. We must dialogue over Scripture. Let me tell you something. God doesn't dialogue. Never has. And if he's unchanging, that means he never will. 
And I have sat in Bible studies and had people read a text and say, well, what do you think about this text? You know what? I don't care what you think about this text. What does God say in the text? That's what I am concerned with. Now that offends people. Try to say that today. Well, you're being harsh. Listen, God doesn't dialogue. He isn't here to give you a philosophy. He's not here to give you some theory. He says, this is truth. In light of that truth, what is your response? The theology of Scripture is... I stand in awe of Scripture because I am looking literally into the mind of God. This is His will. This is His thinking. This is His understanding. This is His knowledge. This is what He is about. And to sit and say we will dialogue over it is makes Balaam's donkey look brilliant. See, the theology of Scripture is not something that we can get a whole bunch of creeds out of. Um, the theology of Scripture, the truth of Scripture is to be fleshed out. Fleshed out. It is to be lived. It is to be seen. This is one of the things that you think about it. If you'd have met the Apostle Paul on his road to Damascus when he was arresting Christians and you'd have seen him a month later, would you have noticed that maybe he's saved? Why do we struggle today on whether people are saved or not? There was no doubt in your mind that Peter was saved. I mean, he walks out right after the ascension of Christ, goes right into the very Sanhedrin who had pronounced murder upon Jesus, says, you men of Israel who murdered Christ. I'm thinking Peter changed. Did you think about that? What caused that change? Well, it's, oh yeah, well, it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the bread. No, man, doctrine became alive. The word of God was with us. Here it is. And look at it. It's affected me. And you know, guys, you guys are in serious trouble. This pastor has reached the heavenlies. My watch has stopped, which means I am allowed to go indefinitely. <laughs> Stephanie said she'd make a pizza run. Anyway. <laughs> Let me give you a fact about the understanding of Scripture. Scripture, when it is preached, proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit, demands a response. It is commanded by the very truth of, its, of the, what is being taught. Whether I teach on the doctrine of love, which is the 13th chapter, whether I'm teaching about church discipline in chapter 7, whether I'm teaching about don't be uh, involved with people, in, in a style or mannerism of the teacher, but what is being preached, we preach Christ and Him crucified. It's foolishness and weakness, but it is the power of God. Whatever the text, it demands a response. I don't care how simple the text. I mean, if you really think about it, take the smallest text of Scripture. He wept. Does that not demand a response? 
let me show you something with the Apostle Paul. I have a lot to cover, and I, I just hope that you'll bear with me because my watch stopped, and you're the ones who have the time problem. If you take the book of Romans, the greatest treatise that has ever been written on the gospel, I call it the Gospel of Romans. Okay? Chapter 12 is the first exhortation that comes out of that text. It is the first time that a believer in the, in the book of Romans comes and he says, do this. Do this. And I've got, I've got some other ones here. But I want you to think about this. Romans 12, 1 says, therefore, key word, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Stop right there. What is the mercies of God? I can summarize them quickly. The mercies of God are the first 11 chapters, and you can summarize it in this. Oh, the depth of the riches boast of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has became his counselor, or who was first given to him, that he might pay it back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, therefore, I urge you, I beg you, I beseech you, by the mercies of God, present yourself. It's a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Okay? But he starts out, it goes all the way back to chapter 1 through 11, and he gives, this is what God has done. He makes a statement there in verse 36. Who has first given to him that he may be paid back him again? Who has given to God that God owes them something? And yet he says, because of what God has given, what? He, you know, if you look at it, it's after all of that theology, all that truth about God, all that pure doctrine, therefore, therefore, on the basis of all of these, on the basis of all of this doctrine, that would be classified what he calls here mercies. Because of all of this mercies of God. Because all of these things that are connected to the nature of God, to the character of God. Because of all these things. All these theological truths. Present yourselves. Present your bodies. Now, I like the idea of the living sacrifice compared to a dead sacrifice. Eleven chapters of theology, you then have the exhortation to behave. And he goes through a whole bunch of stuff. Stuff that you and I don't like. Pay your taxes. Submit to the authorities that are around you. When you run into a weak moral brother, love him. When you run into a legalistic, oh, pain in the butt brother, love him. Bring yourselves in that you don't cause them to stumble. It's all in that text. But it doesn't even start until 12 when it has, comes out with that part. It says what? Present yourself as a living sacrifice. You know what that means? Here I am. Because of your mercies... Here I am. See, this is the difference between uh, 
the liberal brother and the legalistic brother. Okay, the liberal brother believes that God is a great big genie. And if I just say this right prayer and maybe I read the right Bible studies or I get under the right teachers, then I get all the goodies. The legalistic brother says, you ought to love your brother as yourself. You ought to submit to the authorities around you and all the rest of it. And you watch both of them and neither one of them you want to emulate. You never want to emulate them. Why? They look miserable. Why? Because one is doing exactly as the lost people are because of God is gracious. And he deals with that in chapter 7 of Romans. The other one is, I'm supposed to do this. And, you know, you're, you know what did they call it? It used to be no co-ed bathing. Couldn't swim. Men and women couldn't swim together. Okay? You, you don't drink. Okay? You, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't. And I love Jesus. Okay, and then you watch them all go out and offer burnt offerings as they smoke their cigarettes before they leave for lunch. (laughs) I never have understood that. All of the theological truths there, and he says, present yourself as a living sacrifice. Why? Because of his mercy. Why? You should be overwhelmed by it. You should have an overwhelming desire to say... I want this. Why? Look at what he's given me. Though that I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Anybody know what book that's in? Romans. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Anybody know what book that is? Romans. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. But when the fullness of the Gentiles, then he will go back to Israel and deal with Israel. Romans. Romans. How unfathomable are his ways and his wisdom. By these mercies, present yourself as a living Sacrifice. Paul's mind in chapter 1 through chapter 11 is a, is a, is a, is a sweeping. Uh, it encompasses from creations to revelations in 11 chapters the nature of who God is. Paul is grabbing all he can on the nature of God and the wholeness of theology. Theology, the study of who God is. And after he's been up in the infinites for all those 11 chapters, he comes plunging back down to earth and says, now present yourself as a living sacrifice. You know what that is? Because of his mercies, are you ready? This is required of you. This is required of you. I remember a pastor asking me one time. He says, I've been to your church and I've watched. He says, your people all come with Bibles and they're flipping through the pages and all the rest of it. And he says, can you do me a favor? And I said, what's that? And he says, can you come and teach a couple of sermons at my church so that my people start bringing their Bibles? I said, well... Actually, it's a little easier than that. And he says, well, what is that? And I said, they just need to get saved. 
those who do not bring their Bibles are not saved. How can you say that? In the beginning was the Word. It was with God. It was God. If they are not interested in the Bible, they're not interested in God. Oh, that sounds harsh. Needless said in preaching his church, but anyway. Listen, every great theological truth has practical implications. Let me show you a text that's just amazing to me. Um, the book of Psalms. Everybody know what Psalms means? Praises. Okay, I mean, if you read the book of Psalms, it's literally praises to God. Start to finish. Okay. Um, and if you're really honest with the book of Psalms, it's what's amazing about the book of Psalms is the largest chapter in the book of Psalms is 119. Did you know that 119 is the largest chapter in the Bible? Okay. It's a book of praises to God. And there's one focus that is in Psalm 119. You know what it is? Scripture. Amazing thought. But you can summarize that. That was just a rabbit. So if somebody wants to go shoot that thing, go ahead. In Psalm 116, verse 12, I believe you can summarize the whole book of Psalms. <laughs> Everybody looks at me. What? <laughs> okay. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? Largest book of the Bible is praises to God. And right stuck right in the middle of it, right there in verse 12 of 116, he says, By his mercies, what can I render to him? I mean, I, I, mean, I could literally say that is the response of the book of Psalms. Who God is and what he has done, what will I give? Something of myself. Listen, this isn't a, a new phenomenon. If you go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter C, 7, verse 40. This is an interesting. Uh, this is where Jesus gets his feet washed by the, by the woman uh, with the alabaster jar who was of, shall we say, ill repute in the community. He's at... Simon, one of the Pharisees' house for dinner. And so this is the, uh, what's going on there. Jesus answered him. You know, they're sitting there going, she just put like a year's wages of stuff on your feet. Do you not know this woman? She's, you wouldn't want to take her home to mom. Here's what Jesus answered him. Simon. I have something to say to you. He replies, say it, teacher. A moneylender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Okay, a denarii is one day's wage. Okay, so one guy owed 50 days wages and another guy owed 500 days wages. Okay. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? 
Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom was forgave more. And he said to him, You've judged correctly. Have you ever thought about this? Our response is in measure to the degree that God has benefited us. That's what Christ is saying here. We must look and see what God has done and we respond in kind. That is why you have theology and then you have response. You can't sit under biblical preaching and not have a response. It's impossible. Well, it's not because the response may be your eternal damnation. Do you understand that? That is amazing to me. And yet I hear people who teach, conservative evangelicals teach that you can lose your salvation. And I ask them, I said, do you really believe that? And they said, no, but it keeps the people motivated. Isn't that Catholicism? Keep them motivated. When I think about the amazing work and what he has done, and it is on my behalf, it is on our behalf, what should be my response? If you think about this and you're truly honest with Scripture, I mean, Jesus himself says, Lo, I come quickly in. My rewards are with me. Well, sounds like works. Well, you missed that message, didn't you? First of all, I must see the sweep of what God has done. Every Christian worth his salt or her salt should understand the first 11 chapters of Romans. They should know the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of justification, glorification, and God's sovereignty. And once you get a handle on that, then you will look at chapter 12 and say, by these awesome mercies, here I am. There is a response in our lives. Have you ever read, uh, you have, I'm sure you have. If not, your wife will remind you that you have brought it to her attention that a woman is to submit to her own husband, right? And we're not supposed to, to, to uh, provoke our children, but the children are to obey. Sounds like pig Latin, doesn't it? Obey. Anyway. And we read through that and we submit to the authorities that are over us. Anybody know where that's at? You know, and the wives will remind their husbands that you are to love me as Christ. Love the church. He gave himself for her. That'd be me. Right? You know where that's at? It's Ephesians 6. But have you ever read the rest of the letter? Read chapter 1, 2, and 3. That stuff's easy when you get those three knocked down. I mean, truth of the matter is, chapters 1 and 2 are just so mind-boggling that it causes you to have a brain ache. 
chapter 3, part of 4, is Paul praying that they will get this and that Christ will dwell in them and that God will do exceedingly abundantly beyond what he could think or imagine because now I need you to love your wives as Christ loved the church and women submit and you be this to the authorities and you go to kids are going to and we're going to and you work you don't treat your boss like he's there or not there and he's always the same and you do everything is unto Christ and then all that other stuff but you're given who is God first and because of that let's do it you ever read the book of Daniel yeah, it's that 70-week thing, 69, and gee, many crickets. I didn't realize the Bible had math problems. Okay? Now, you missed the book of Daniel. Chapter 1. Daniel and his buddies are taken in to the royal family of Nebuchadnezzar. And they set their hearts to What? Obey God. The theology that they knew, they would submit to that theology in light of everything. Okay? Then we had a little problem with the kitty cats in the den. Remember that? Why? Do you, anybody know why he was thrown into the lion's den? Praying. Praying publicly. And he wasn't praying to Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, how about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Had a little problem with the heating going amok, right? Gets thrown into fire. Do anybody remember why they were thrown into fire? They wouldn't bow to the great temple of, or the great idol of Nebuchadnezzar. But do you realize that that whole venue set up quickly because they refused to eat the foods that the pagans ate? We would all like to stand up and say, throw me in the fire, throw me in the lion's den, I'll persevere. How about your diet? You know what's the most amazing text in all of the book of Daniel? Remember when Daniel was doing this prayer stuff and an angel brought him down? Angel brought the, the answer back from heaven. Remember that? I'll let you look it up. And he says, Daniel, your prayers have been heard. You are highly exalted in heaven. You know what that means? Do you understand that that's before the atoning of the cross? Do you understand that in heaven there is the Godhead and holy angels? That's it. And in the Godhead and the angelic, holy angelic beings, Daniel is highly exalted exalted because he fleshed out his theology it's amazing stuff isn't it there is to be a response in our lives and it should and it fits totally the grace that God has laid upon us it's a simple principle if you really think about it and yet it's a very important principle. In chapter 15, verse 29, this is what Paul is dealing with here. Paul is saying, look, the whole concept of resurrection truth lays out some very strong imperatives. 
You will not necessarily see them verbalized or written down in exact connotation. Do this, don't do that. But when you think about resurrection life, how does that affect you? What is your response to resurrected life? Listen, the resurrection is reality. First 28 verses hammered that out. If you had 500 witnesses to OJ's little problem 13 years ago, you get a conviction. 500 witnesses is pretty good. I mean, you just start walking them through. And there was over 500 witnesses who seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. You even have an enemy. An enemy to the resurrection seen the resurrected Christ and was completely turned on his head, the Apostle Paul. You have a relative of the resurrected Christ who was skeptical when he was alive and yet he became the first pastor in Jerusalem. James, Jesus' half-brother. So when you think about it, the resurrection carries with it some great motivation, incentives. If we remove the bodily resurrection, remember verse 12, why would some of you say there is no resurrection? You remove that, how am I going to get someone to present themselves as a living sacrifice? How do I, my passionate verse, one Colossians 1.18, my desire, my overwhelming ambition is to present every man complete in Christ. How do I accomplish that if there's no resurrection? How do we get people to present their bodies to Christ? You can't get people to come to Christ if there's no resurrection. You can't get people to serve Christ if there is no resurrection. And you definitely ain't going to get them to live holy if there is no resurrection. Listen, here's one of the things I know about people. And this is the truth. People give to what they have hope in. Anybody want to disagree with that? Critics in verse 12 of 15 says, there is no resurrection. Remove um, some major of that incentive for Christian life. There is no resurrection. What are the principles for behavior then? People are not going to give their life to something that they have no hope in. It's, it's, uh, we have a phenomenon, we call it a workaholic. Never thought about that? Do you know why people do that? I do. What is their hope in? What makes you think they're going to live a sacrificial life if there is no resurrection? Set their life apart to holiness if there is no resurrection. If there's no resurrection, there's no consequences. If there's no consequences, there's no rewards. If there's no rewards, there's no punishment. If there's no punishment, then there is no accountability. Okay, now then, I gave you that because that is what this chapter is. Chapter 15. That will fall into verse 29. 
If there is a resurrection, then we will face Christ. And if we will face Christ, we will have to be at the judgment seat of Christ. Listen, this is the hope. Tradition says Andrew was tied to a cross and he hung on that cross for almost a week before his life finally died. What would cause a man to hang crucified for days until death sets in? Hope in the resurrection. Tradition tells me that the day before Peter was crucified, they crucified his wife. And he yelled from the prison window, Sweetheart, my love, my bride. You shall soon see Christ. What would ever possess a man to do that? And the next day they were crucifying him. In both cases, he all he had to do was deny Jesus Christ and both lives are spared. But in the hope of the resurrection, he says, I will see my master. I will see him face to face and he will say, well done, true and faithful servant. Therefore, crucify me. I am not worthy of such a death as my Lord. So do it to me upside down. Let me ask you a question. Do you long to see the fruit of your labor? Because if you do, then you live in light of the hope of what? The resurrection. Listen, my fruit is not here. Okay? I love you guys. But I do not know the impact of my fruit until I see him face to face. And therefore we live in the hope of the resurrection. All right. All of this you must keep in your little brains. So when I deal with the baptism of the dead, you understand what I'm saying. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the resurrection and thank you for the hope of the resurrection. Thank you for the precious saints who have gone before us, have given all to the glory of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, as we prepare to partake of your table, as we prepare to remember what was given, Father, may by those mercies, we who are gathered here this time, we who are gathered and called by your name, May we lovingly, longingly, overwhelmed with desire, present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pure to you and you alone. In Christ's name, amen.